0: Good to be with you guys today. Good morning to everyone online. Good morning to our friends at Farmington Hills, Pastor Sean and friends over there. So glad to be with you guys today. Today we're going to be continuing in our series through the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at Paul's third missionary journey. But before we go any further, let us go before our Lord and pray. Father God, we come to you in your mighty and matchless son's Jesus name. God, we thank you for your word that speaks to us, that pierces the heart, God. I pray that it would do so today, that you would speak to your people, that you would move me out of the way. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. God, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Lift up the head of the weary, Father God. God, we need you and we love you. It's see, your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Quiet quitting, that's something that has become sort of a phenomenon in and throughout and after the pandemic. It's this idea of showing up physically, but not quite being there mentally, emotionally, in all of the other ways. I wanna look at a definition of quiet quitting from Gallup. It says, quiet quitting is an approach to work in which an individual is psychologically detached from their job and doing the bare minimum to meet the requirements. No effort, no going above and beyond. And oddly enough, this is quite common. More common than I'm kind of comfortable with. This is is very common. I want to look at some of the, the stats. 50% 50% of people would say that I'm not engaged, that I'm quiet quitting, that I'm showing up, but I'm not, I'm not all there. That's, that's, that's half of people, and I say that alarms me a little bit because I think of certain occupations. Like, is my pilot on the plane quiet quitting today? Is my doctor quiet quitting? It's scary enough to go to the doctor. I'm like, is he all or is she all there this morning? 18% of people are actively disengaged. That means that on the job, they're on whatever device. They're making a TikTok on the job. They're, they're actively disengaged. So that's a, that's a part of the population. And then 32% of people are actually actively engaged. That, that is the real world. And that exists for various reasons. That might exist because of fatigue. That might exist for just being very busy in other areas of life, and so we show up to work in these various occupations not quite fully there. The thing about quiet quitting, it doesn't just show up at work. It can show up in other areas of life. We can quiet quit on on relationships. We can quiet quit on our faith. It's possible to quiet quit on the faith We can show up but not be really all there. Maybe only those who are close enough to you can discern that the fire just isn't burning like it has burned at one point. Maybe there was a point where you were taking bold leaps of faith and you were trusting God for things that were impossible without him. And for one reason or another, you may have reserved a little bit. Or maybe there was a season where you prayed bold prayers and you trusted God for things and you were praying bold prayers, but maybe the prayers now are a little more, a little more tamed. Or maybe the cares of life have, have, have choked out the passion that was there and what was a vibrant burning flame it has now become more dull. Maybe it's lost its intensity. Maybe you're not there this morning. Maybe you're burning bright. Maybe you're on fire. But statistically speaking, there's a lot of us this morning whose flame might not be burning as hot as it has burned before for various reasons. We've been through a lot in the last few years. We've been through a lot of change. We've been through a lot of loss. And for a lot of us, we're experiencing a little bit of a, of, a, of a dull flame or a loss in intensity for one reason or another. And I hope that God speaks to us this morning and encourages us. I wanna look at this word intensity. The word intensity is built off of the word intend. Like when we intend to do something, to stretch out for something, to aim at something. So the idea is that if you intend on doing something, to reach out for something, to aim at something, to strive for something, then intensity is the degree to which you actually do it. It's one thing to intend to follow Jesus, but intensity is where I actually take a step and actually attempt to follow him. Intensity. Jesus speaks to a church in the book of Revelation who had lost its intensity. I want to look at Revelation chapter 3 for just a second. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is a church. These are Christians that have lost their intensity. So I have a reflection question for you this morning. You can think about it now. You can think about it at some point this week, and this is just for you. And maybe someone else around you can confirm this, but I want you to start with yourself first, and I want to start with myself first. And the question is, what is my temperature? What's my temperature? Am I hot? Am I cold? What is the intensity level of my faith? Where is it? Am, am I hot? Am I cold? Where am I in this season? Another way to put this is: If I were a packet of Taco Bell sauce, what sauce would I be? Don't you keep a packet of hot sauce in your pocket? <laughs> what, what would I be? Would I be? Would I be? Would I be mild? Not quite a lot of intensity. I don't know who actually eats mild sauce on their Taco Bell. I don't know who's humble enough to admit that they actually eat Taco Bell, this one. (laughs) But there's not a lot of intensity in this. Would you say I'm here? I'm like, I, I know God, but it's not a lot of intensity for me in this season. There's some things that I intend to do, but I'm not really doing them. They have this medium hot where it's like, a little bit of intensity. You can taste it a little bit. Not quite on fire, but it's medium level intensity. And maybe you say I'm there. I'm not mild, but I'm not, I'm not on fire either. I genuinely, generally trust God. And I talk to him about the contents of my life, but I don't, I don't feel like I'm on fire. And then there is fire. Taco Bell, Chris, this. they have the, the fire. This one has quite a bit of intensity. And maybe you might say that I feel like I'm on fire in this season. What does that look like? When you're on fire, it's, it's when you're trusting God for things that you know you can't accomplish on your own. That's when you, you pray that bold prayer for that person to come to faith. And nothing on God's green earth looks like it's going to lead to this person coming to faith. But you trust God because you know of a God who can and a God who will. And, and you pray things that can't happen unless God shows up. Like, if God doesn't show up, I'm gonna look like I've I've, I've lost, I'm gonna look like I've lost it. But I'm I'm putting myself out there and I'm trusting him. Are you on fire in this season? Then Taco Bell makes this thing called Diablo. Now, Diablo means devil in Spanish, and we're not going there, all right? (laughs) But is it possible to run too hot, to be too busy? To be doing too much. And maybe it looks like it's motivated by faith, but it's really motivated by ambition and fear and a whole lot of other things. And though it looks like the busy person who's Diablo, it looks like that person is on fire. In actuality, this is the quickest way to burn out and to go cold. By doing a lot in your own strength and ended up burnt out. I have been here. Our first year of marriage, eight years ago, when Ashley and I got married, I was so busy. I was actually very busy in the church. And I looked like I might have been on fire, but really I was burning out and I was cold. And some of you guys might be there. The various areas of life have you so busy that you feel, you feel maybe kind of cold this morning. I want to encourage you that there's some misconceptions about what a spiritually vibrant person looks like. The most spiritually alive and on fire and vibrant person is not the busiest person always, though though God puts us to work and calls us to do things. But that's not necessarily the on fire person, nor is the loudest person in the room necessarily the most on fire person. I love a good amen like anybody else. I love a good hallelujah as a preacher. Bring them on. I'll take them. But volume doesn't necessarily lead to spiritual vibrancy. Some of the most on fire for Jesus people I know are more quiet people. Some of the most on fire people for Jesus I know aren't preachers and missionaries, but they're grandmothers who are prayer warriors who pray every day and trust the Lord for big things, things Outside of their strength and ability to do on their own. Some of the most on fire people I know are teenagers who've decided to follow Jesus at a young age and aren't waiting till they get old because they know that God can use them now. And one of the the best ways to rekindle the fire if it's been lost is to go low and to go slow. Jesus was never in a hurry. You remember that passage of scripture was when Jesus was running frantic? No, you don't, because that ain't in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus was not running frantic and busy all of the time. So if we're walking with him, we don't have to be frantic and crazy busy either. We walk at his pace. We go low and we go slow. And, and that's where God can rekindle the fire again. That's where God can give you fresh vision again. That's when God can give you new courage again. And another way to rekindle the fire is to get around someone else who's on fire. Get around people who are hot. Get around people who are on fire and not people who put your fire out. This morning, we're going to look at a story from the Apostle Paul, a man on fire. And I pray that as we observe his story that it would inspire us as well. Acts chapter 21 is where we find ourselves this morning. Paul is in his third missionary journey, and he's making his way back to Jerusalem. He's been working his way through Asia and and, and Greece, and he's been planting churches and preaching the gospel, and he's been pouring into these various Gentile, non-Jewish faith communities. And as he's been going, he's been collecting funds— so he can collect those funds and deliver them back to the church in Jerusalem. In our our context today, there was a famine, and the church at Jerusalem was struggling financially. And so Paul is collecting these funds from these various churches as he goes. And the plan is to go back to Jerusalem to preach the gospel and to deliver a great gift to the Jewish church from all of these Gentile churches. As you've been following along, there's been great division between Jews and Gentiles. And wouldn't this be a great gesture if the Gentile churches would financially support the Jewish church? That's what Paul is up to. He's making his way back. And as he's making his way back to Jerusalem, he has an emotional journey. He's saying farewell to a bunch of friends, a bunch of long hugs, you know, the long ones where you pat them on the back. He's saying a bunch of those long hugs. After, here it says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. It says after we had torn ourselves away. Just imagine that emotional context. This is, this is farewell. This is goodbye. This is I don't know if I'm going to see you again. Because word on the street is there's some persecution awaiting Paul in Jerusalem. So this This might be it. So this is a very emotional last journey. I'm going to look at a picture of the map of this journey. And so Paul is in a little boat. And it's not a boat that can really handle the big water. So he's staying close to the coast here. So he stops at this place called Kos. And he probably stays there about a day. Then he goes to another little island call roads. And he probably stays there about a day. He's making his way along the coast. Then he stops at Patara, which was a very strategic port. Now, Patara got a lot of traffic and, and big boats traveled to and from Patara. Paul is trying to get here, if you're tracking with me. That little boat is not going to make it from there to here. So God has to provide. And that's a good thing for us to focus in on for a second. God is providing for Paul, every step of the way in affirming this calling. And so he stops here at Petara. He needs a bigger boat. Then boom, God provides one. Let's look at the next passage. It says, we found a ship. He was on a little boat. Now God has provided a ship, and he's crossing over to Phoenicia and went aboard and set sail. God provides And when we're walking in the will of God, we can trust him to provide everything that we need along the way. Paul didn't have a Four Seasons hotel or a flight booked, but he's trusting God that he's going to get him to where he needs to go. So let's continue in the passage here. It says, after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed onto Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. As I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a second. He has a group of people with him. He has a large sum of money with him. He's on a mission. He's trying to get this this gift to Jerusalem and he's on this boat which was probably a 5-day trip on this boat and he's not in control of this situation. He's not steering the ship. He's not determining the pace. He doesn't even probably know where they're going to land, and he doesn't know who's going to be there when he lands. But he's completely surrendered to the will of God and trusting that God has him right where he's supposed to be. And if you struggle a little bit with being a control freak like me, you're probably like, oh, my goodness. You're just on this boat for five days trusting that he's going to work it out. And Paul does. He trusts that God is going to work it out. And they land at Tyre. I want to go to the next passage here. It says that we sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. What does Paul do when he first land in this new place where he probably doesn't know anybody? It says that he looks for the disciples. He sought the people of God. Paul knew that he couldn't do this on his own. And friends, if Paul can't do it on his own, you and I certainly can't do it on our own. And so Paul looks for, for the church. He looks for other believers. And he He finds them. I imagine that they're having some good conversation, and they're catching up, and they provide him shelter. He's there for seven days, I would think, and they're taking care of him as he's on this journey. But then it gets a little awkward. Let's go to the next part of that verse. It gets a little awkward. It says, through the Spirit, that's key, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Awkward, awkward. Yeah, dinner. Like, okay, things just got awkward. They're telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. That's the only reason he has stopped here in the first place. He's on the pathway back to Jerusalem. He has this big bag of of, of coins that he's collected. He wants to deliver that. And now these people who I've just met, thank you, you're all in my business now, telling me not to go on to Jerusalem. And what makes it even more challenging, it says, through the Spirit they urged Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. I like to call this a Bible study speed bump. Because when you hit something, boom, it makes you slow down. You got to think about it. What is going on here? The Spirit is speaking through this people, but the Spirit also has been speaking to Paul. Now the Spirit has been telling Paul to go to Jerusalem, and now it says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Head scratcher, Bible study, speed bump. It's like when the guy creepily walks up to the young lady after church and says, God told me that you're my wife. And she's like, well, God ain't told me that. So somebody's wrong. That's what's what's happening here. And so in all seriousness, there's been a lot of debate and disagreement about what's happening here. Did Paul disobey God or was Paul walking in the will of God was the Spirit of God, because the Spirit was speaking, the Spirit did reveal to the other believers what was going to happen to Paul. And the Spirit also revealed this to Paul. But the, but the idea is this. Was the Spirit trying to prevent Paul from going on to Jerusalem? Or was the Spirit trying to prepare Paul for what was going to happen in Jerusalem? One New Testament scholar explains it like this. F.F. Bruce says, it should not be concluded that this determination to go on was disobedience to the guidance of the Spirit of God. It was under constraint of that Spirit that he was bound for Jerusalem with such determination. Paul was bound by the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God that was leading Paul. That's what F.F. Bruce says. When you run into a Bible study speed bump like this when it's not clear, the best thing to do is to zoom out and see how this one text fits into the grand scheme of what the Bible is saying. And I want us to do that for just a second so that we can be sure that Paul is not disobeying God. Let's go to the, to the next text. And this is earlier on in the book of Acts. God had been preparing Paul for this. God says, for I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Suffering is a part of God's will for Paul, and Paul has known this all along. But Paul's friends have a hard time of embracing that. If you knew that your friend was going to go somewhere and face some kind of difficulty, you probably would try to stop them too. But Paul knew all along that this was the will of God for my life. Let's continue. I just want us to be clear. Now, after these things finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go on to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. This was a part of the plan the Spirit has been leading him. As it wants to be crystal clear, one more time, Acts chapter 20. I think all of the, the, the texts point to the fact that God is leading him this direction. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that the prison, that prison and hardships are facing me. For however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul is on fire. Paul is clear about his mission and what God has called him to. And the total picture of the scriptures point to the fact that, yes, Paul is walking in obedience. And Paul is walking in the will of God, but the will of God for him involves a certain level of suffering, and that is very difficult for his friends to embrace. Paul knows that he's walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And sometimes when you're following Jesus, you begin to look like Jesus, and your story begins to look like his. I want us to look one of the gospels and look at Jesus's life and you're going to see that Jesus's life looks a lot like Paul's life. And this is Jesus. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Sounds familiar. Many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, similar to Paul's friends, Jesus' friends didn't want him to go either. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Here's what we know. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus that stories begin to look like his. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories begin to look like his. And at times, that involves a certain level of difficulty and suffering and resistance from this fallen world. And Paul has embraced that. He continues on his journey. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. A lot of farewells, a lot of goodbyes. Let's continue. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. What we're going to see, the intensity is about to increase. The vision of what's going to happen to Paul is about to become very clear. And God is revealing this through the spirit and through the gift of prophecy as he reveals to Paul what's going to happen to him. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't you hear what's going to happen to you? You're going to be bound up and beat up and arrested. Don't go. This is your chance to not go. This is your chance to, to turn around. You can just stay here with us. Wouldn't it be nice, Paul, if you just, you just stay back with us? No one will ever know. Let's see what Paul does. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. He said, the Lord's will be done. Now, either Paul is hard-headed or he's following the Spirit's leading on his life. And we've already concluded that God has been calling him to this for quite a long time. He's just being faithful. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories begin to look like his. And my hope for you, friends, is that when your story begins to look like Jesus' story, that you would not lose heart, that you would not grow cold, and that you would not be surprised when your story begins to look like Jesus' story. I pray that you would keep pressing forward, knowing that he has, he has come alongside you and that he is with you. I want to take some time and pray for us Specifically, I want to pray for the person who feels tired, who feels like my fire is not burning like it used to or how I desire it to. I want to pray for the person who feels like they've been beat up, sapped of energy by the cares of the world, by all of the responsibilities. My encouragement to you, friend, is to go low and go slow, go to him. He can rekindle. He can rekindle the fire that seems like it may be dull in this season. If you're tired, I just want you we can keep our eyes closed. If you're feeling that fatigue, I just want you to lift a hand, and I just want to pray for you. By faith, just lift your hand. if that's you. Father, God, I lift up my brother. My sister, God, I pray that you would restore their strength. I pray that you will refill their cup. I pray that you would give them wisdom for how to number their days. I pray that you would give them discernment for what you want them to let go of and what you want them to cling tightly to. And mainly, I hope that they cling tightly to you, Lord. I pray that you would light a fire in us. Not a busy, worldly fire, but God, a fire that comes from your spirit. God, I lift up this body to you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.